Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And today, we're talking about Wagner, Russia's notorious private military company founded by Evgeny Prigozhin, and its failed attempt to take on Russia's military establishment in Moscow. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent reporter Francis Farrell. Francis, welcome back. Yeah, what a week this has been. Um, maybe we should call this episode This Week in Russia. Something like that, yeah. So June 24th was really, truly a crazy day. Um, we all watched reports of columns of Wagner mercenaries just going through Russian soil, occupying cities and military sites, ultimately trying to reach Moscow as kind of a rebellious sign against Russia's current military leadership. But Let's go back to the roots of all of this mess um, and ultimately to the person behind it. So Wagner's founder, Evgeny Prigozhin, who is he and what's his story? Yeah, so the root of this mess is certainly Evgeny Prigozhin in many ways, although in his current form, he's a bit of a creation of, of Vladimir Putin, but we'll get to that. Uh, he is well known as a former criminal. He spent about nine years in prison at the, around the end of the Soviet Union for, for petty crime. And then he was released. And as many of these Russian businesses, businessmen do, like climbed up the business ladder, was mm -hmm. an entrepreneur with a lot of dirty practices, uh, famously a hot dog salesman at some point and mm -hmm. food seemed to be really profitable for him to the point where he again he climbed up the ladder he started to run bigger and bigger companies and he he came in very good favor with uh, Vladimir Putin he's who, now referred to as his chef right yeah that's what that's what I'm getting to all the all the stuff about Putin's chef um his company uh, Concord Group was the official caterer for the Kremlin and also got a lot of very lucrative contracts with the actual Russian military which seems a bit ironic now um But anyway, uh, and then and then you know through through that favor, I guess then he started getting involved with uh, other ventures in a way that you know uh, basically solves problems that the Kremlin needs solving. And one of them was this famous troll farm in Saint Petersburg, uh, which is uh, credited with you know inf interfering with the U.S. elections and other things. And of course. Wagner itself, the, the mercenary company, which has been involved in Ukraine since 20, 2014, and of course in Syria, Africa, anywhere where a dictator needs a bit of help and comes to Moscow um, for that help. So Wagner has been involved in Ukraine since 2014. Um, did the role change when Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022? Yeah, it changed in a big way, of course, in the whole way that the war changed. At first, uh, in the first eight years of the war, Wagner was the typical kind of tool of plausible deniability for Russia to continue that fight in, in Donbass against Ukraine, which everyone knows they were very involved with and coordinated from the start, but have a way to do it without um, admitting that, that it's coordinated by Moscow. But then, obviously, once the full-scale invasion started, all gloves were off, but Wagner was still there. It was an experience and quite professional uh, fighting unit. And uh, 
they they got involved very quickly, um, but really started to to fight on a larger scale around summer last year um, as part of this big Russian push in in Donbas, which is what they've been doing ever since, basically. Uh, and in a way, they've they really benefited from, of course, their previous combat experience all over the world, but they've also benefited from a, a much more informal and kind of flexible command and organization structure. They don't mm-hmm. have this kind of legacy like. Um, intense command structure, which is complicated, bureaucratic, corrupt, uh, and and kind of lumbering. So, Pulled over from Soviet times. I guess. Yeah. So like in autumn last year, we saw Prigozhin himself start to travel around Russian prisons and recruit tens of thousands of prisoners with a simple deal. Like you fight for us for six months, you'll probably die. But if you don't, you'll have money and you'll have your freedom. And a lot of people in these Russian prisons took him up on that. And so that's around the time as well that the Russian assault on Bakhmut really started to escalate, not only in the city, but around the flanks. And uh, in these areas, I mean, I was there, I saw it happening. Wagner was able to kind of use a really specialized kind of dual tactic we talk about human waves and i I guess these prisoner soldiers were often used in these kind of human waves Mm -hmm. attacks but they were done together with the more professional soldiers under plenty of artillery fire and it proved to be a formula that really worked uh, for attacking for taking ukrainian territory um bit by bit just just kind of by brute force and in a time when you know ukraine was on the offensive in in autumn and the regular russian military certainly wasn't having any success whatsoever so i guess that's that's when we realized that wagner is is one of the main kind of columns of, of russia's war in ukraine it's clear that the relationship between the wagner group and prigozhin and the Kremlin was a very mutually beneficial one. It was lucrative. It, it worked militarily. But things started going wrong. Um, I guess my question is when and why? So things started to go wrong, not necessarily with the Kremlin itself, but with the Russian defense ministry, with the regular military, with defense minister Sergei Shoigu, and with the chief of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov, uh, who Prigozhin mentions constantly in his videos. Of course, these two entities were in competition for resources and for political favor from the Kremlin, which they both depend on. And Shoigu and Gerasimov depend on him, uh, on, on Putin for their jobs. And as I said, for a while, you know, they'd been failing in many ways. They'd, they'd been the victims of uh, two very successful Ukrainian counteroffensives. Mm-hmm. While mean, Meanwhile, uh, Prigozhin was showing that he can get the job done. He can attack, uh, he can take new territory, which is what Putin desperately uh, wanted, of course. So in February, we had this first instance of Prigozhin outwardly complaining about not having ammunition for his troops. Um, and and directly blaming the Russian defense ministry for kind of screwing him over, for uh, betraying Russia in many ways with their corruption, with their bureaucracy, uh, and claiming that that Wagner troops were dying because of of yeah of the lack of ammunition to support them. Which and I'll say on the ammunition issue, like you ask any Ukrainian soldier who's been around Bakhmut for week for months and months over winter and. In spring, they'll say they, they never had any any problems. You could barely ever feel like this was a quiet week with ammunition or mm-hmm. or something like that. Whether it was because of ammunition or because that's how the battle was going for him, he was losing his fighters more and more. And with his fighters came, you know, he was losing his chance at political success. He was losing his chance to to, you know, 
get more favor from the Kremlin, get more resources to go further, because at this point, and that's what happened in the end, that he, he, he took Bakhmut, but that's all. At that point, he, he'd run out of steam and Wagner had run out of, of fighters to really keep going and, and be effective. You know, as he, he, he's smart, obviously, he saw the writing on the wall and, and that's when these public kind of complaints about the ministry, about Shoigu got really intense around the beginning of May. You know, he was standing in front of his own dead fighters, uh, mm-hmm, you know, really, right. really grim, just like yelling at the camera saying like, uh, where are the effing ammunition? He was also like asking, I think, I wonder where is Shoiku's son? What is he doing? Is he fighting in this war that these kids are dying for? And it was really brazen attacks. Yeah, and that, that brings a good point about like Prigozhin's self-image. Obviously, he has always um, traveled very close to the front line, unlike basically anyone else right. in the Russian yeah. command. You know, there's there's no smoke and mirrors here. He he was in Bakhmut while the city was still uh, contested. Uh, you know, he he built up this image very successfully of 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 a man who gets the job done, who speaks the truth. Unlike the you know the ideological propaganda bureaucratic kind of Russian uh, machine of which. Um, uh, Shoigu and and other elites uh, who yeah whose children you know study abroad and they've got all their villas and their yachts and so on like uh, a real kind of people's people's man people's so a, people's fascist a populist figure yeah in many ways yeah um, so so that's when that's when it got really intense uh, and and it just kind of snowballed from then onward but how exactly does it snowball from you don't give us ammunition, please give us more ammunition, you suck, to we're going to march into Moscow and try to do God knows what, take you on, negotiate with you. Like, it snowballed really quickly. How exactly did that happen? The turning point is when uh, Shaigu announced that Wagner fighters and all other fighters of these mercenary groups, these volunteer groups, would all have to sign contracts with the Russian Defense Ministry. So dozens of private military companies, on which there are in fact dozens in Russia, they all now have to kind of succumb to the orders of Shegu. Yeah, it sounds like a kind of universal thing. Wagner wasn't said in uh, mentions specifically in the announcement, but it was it was a very clear like mm-hmm. targeted move by right. Shaigu, by the the Russian regular military command. Um we don't know if Putin was involved in coming up with this or if he was even asked, but um they they did this and it was very clear that if this happened, you know, that would be the end for Wagner's independence for Prigozhin's personal kind of political room for, for for maneuver and so he initially came out and said absolutely not you know we refuse to do that on june 23rd on friday evening Prigozhin, having recorded a video earlier where he basically demolished all of russia's propaganda justification for for the war he claimed that uh, russia that well the 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 defense ministry had uh, carried out a strike, a missile strike on a Wagner base. We don't know where it was, but people speculate it was in occupied Ukraine. He said that it's time to restore justice. It's time to kind of bring Shegu and Gerasimov uh, what they deserve. And uh, that evening, you know, off they went. And we all find out in the morning <laughs> what that would look, actually look like. And what did that look like? H- how did Prigozhin's threats materialize? I guess the thing we all woke up to on on Saturday morning was that Wagner troops were in Rostov. It's this big southern city of about a million people in Russia, quite close to the Ukrainian border. And it's a central hub for Russia's operations. 
in, in the war against Ukraine, especially in Eastern Ukraine. It's the headquarters of the Russian Southern Military Command. And so he actually sat down with a deputy defense minister and, and told him like, this is what we're doing. It was, it had a real kind of criminal authoritative uh, mm. vibe to yeah. it. And he took Rostov, you know, without any resistance, basically. We, we, saw, we saw no evidence of, of local national guard or FSB or anyone really, really do anything about him. We saw in, in many ways, similar to the scenes of Russian troops, you know, occupying Ukrainian cities at the very beginning of the war. Uh, yeah, Wagner troops, tanks in the middle of the in the, the middle city. of the of the city, central streets. There was a T ninety tank that got stuck in a circus gate, which was <laughs> nice to see. Um, and then by the early hours of the morning, they headed up straight uh, the M four highway uh, from Rostov towards Moscow. They went through the city of Voronezh pretty quickly. Were there any casualties or like real active fighting between Russian military units and Wagner? So we didn't see any like. Intense fighting on the ground, basically. We, what we did see was uh, fighting in the air. So we saw, we have evidence of six helicopters in total and one kind of command plane that was shot down because the Wagner columns, they, they had these uh, air defense, these mobile air defense units with them. You know, the column just kept moving and it seemed like it was meeting very little resistance most of the way. What was the people's reaction? Uh, just regular locals who were s seeing all of this yeah, that was kind of one of the weirdest things about about it. It was that in 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 Rostov, the locals seemed to really, I mean, not all of them. Some some kind of shouted some things, but almost all of them seemed to either welcome the Wagner troops, like take photos with them, bring them coffee, or just kind of go about their day. There was this video of the street cleaner just you know cleaning his his street uh, as the as the tanks were were chilling in the in That's the main so square. So bizarre. Um, yeah. What were Prigozhin's actual goals here? Did he state any clear demands? And from that, another question is like, what's the most accurate way to refer to what happened? Was it an attempt of a coup? Was it a, a rebellion of some sort? Was it, I don't know, um, a march of justice, as Prigozhin called it? Because so many media outlets refer to this differently. And if you read Twitter, it's a whole another kind of drain of opinions. So what's the actual accurate way to refer to these events i remember clearly as we were you know our group our editorial team were scrambling mm -hmm. to to figure out what was going on and, and how to call it we were discussing between coup attempt between mutiny rebellion i mean mutiny sounds like it's on a ship um rebellion sounds like they're brave freedom fighters so we didn't really like that either um but then coup attempt gets back to your original question which is like what were, what were his goals and I guess um, the main thing that a lot of us were trying to figure out at the time was, is he going against Putin himself or not? Um, because he hasn't mentioned Putin at all in any of his video messages and audio messages, right? Yeah, there was one where he said that the, the president has, has made a big mistake and we're not going to come and surrender to him. So that's, that was the point where a lot of us were thinking, okay, he's, he's really going for it. I mean, we don't think he's going to succeed, but this seems to be what you could call a coup because how can you take on Moscow? How can you take on the whole Russian military establishment without taking on Putin, who of course can always jump on a plane, which I think he did, uh, to go to another part of Russia? 
so it, it's it's tricky. I think I think now, yeah, what he was saying, of course, was that it was this march of justice. You know, it was a show of force. He was doing it to save Wagner's honor and um, you know save Wagner as an organization and try and bring down Shaigu and Gerasimov because that's what he was saying. He was always going after them. Um, I think the the truth is is somewhere in between. Uh, now I think it's clear that he he didn't really believe he could go after Putin himself, and I think what many experts agree on is that like he really thought he had a chance. He thought he had allies in the security services. He thought that you know being so outward and public, especially if the defense ministry kind of reacted incompetently, um, which they did as usual, that that maybe somehow uh, Putin could flip to his side and be like, mm, okay, we've got to go with Prigozhin here. But of course, with hindsight, that, that also had very, very little chance of success. Speaking of Putin, um, what was he doing as all of this was unfolding hour by hour? Was there an immediate reaction of some sort from the Kremlin? At first, as usual, he was very quiet. Um, we had, we heard nothing from him overnight. And then in the morning we were all at this security training. Where right. We were ready to, uh, stop everything and watch his address, which turned out to be, uh, you know, extremely anticlimactic and anticlimactic and boring as usual. Um, but that's okay. Basically, he, you know, he said he, he was, he was kind of dramatic in the sense that he said, you know, this is like 1917. Um, you know, this needs to be crushed. There, the appeals to history. Yeah, there. This is a stab in the back um, to the motherland. Uh, I can we just point out that that literally sounds like Nazi propaganda. So yeah, finally, after you know, um, everyone woke up and they took Rostov, and Putin finally came out and said something. We we saw that they were preparing for this scenario of defending Moscow. Uh, National Guard kind of leader, Viktor Zolotov, who's a close ally of Putin, he, he was kind of making the excuse for not acting anywhere else, saying that his priority was like concentrating his forces and defending Moscow, which is interesting excuse. But uh, yeah, that's what it looked like. So we could see that, you know, they were actually tearing up their own road uh, with these diggers. They were trying to put um, huge civilian trucks kind of in the way of the Wagner columns, which in one point, like Wagner just pushed through them. And they were digging trenches outside Moscow, which is an always exciting picture. Um, but, you know, so, so it's, it's, very it's very difficult, obviously, to actually picture you know, what it would look like. You had this column of like armored vehicles and lots of random pickup trucks and tanks on, on trucks, you know, heading towards Moscow. And it's, it's very you know, difficult to imagine what it would look like if they all had to stop and fan out into battle formation and then move forward on this city of 15 million people. It, it would have been very strange. Uh, but they were preparing, you know, it, they seemed to take it seriously. Did Prigozhin have any allies? You mentioned that Perhaps he was hoping that he's going to get more support than he ultimately did. Yeah. So, and this is where it comes back to his kind of ideological image, I guess, of being the true patriot against all the traitors and all the people with their villas overseas. He was, he was really reaching out to everyone, uh, to units of the military, to rank and file soldiers, um, to the National Guard and so on, to like, come join us on our march of justice. But everyone was scared. People, I think, understood that his chances were very, very little here. They would prefer to just step back and see what happens. Within the Russian military itself, a lot of people have said that Prigozhin's main ally is uh, this guy, Sergei Surovikin, who 
actually had the role of the head of Russia's kind of war against Ukraine, the leader of all of the joint operations for a few months, including during um, the time when when Russia had to leave Kherson. And he was always seen as a, a kind of Prigozhin within the, the ministry, kind of also mm-hmm. more rational, mm-hmm. more brutal, more ruthless, but kind of more efficient as well. And he was known to, to get along with with Prigozhin. But Surovikin came out uh, very early on, you know, with a gun on his lap and called called for him to stop and, and called for Wagner to put down their arms. Um, but then just today, there was a r- report in the New York Times uh, citing U.S. Uh, officials, as they always do, saying that uh, Surovikin actually knew about the plans earlier and uh, perhaps was prepared to help Prigozhin or perhaps Prigozhin ex- expected him to help. Um, so that's going to be an interesting thing to watch in the next week or so, like what happens to Shaigu, of course, Gerasimov, but also what happens to Rovikin, you know. So we know that Moscow obviously didn't fall. Putin is still Russia's dictator. So Prigozhin didn't succeed. Um, he didn't reach Moscow. How did all of that end? Um, wh- why was that also so anticlimactic? Yeah, so it ended very, very suddenly. Uh, at first, uh, it was Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko who first said that he had a chat with Prigozhin and convinced him to call the whole thing off. And then within a few minutes, we heard on Prigozhin's press service where he always uploads his voice messages to the world. Um, he also said, we're calling it off. He said, we've reached the point where blood will be spilled, not mentioning the helicopter pilots who were shot down. Uh so we're turning around. We're going back to our field camps in the rear. And, uh, and, and that was it. You know, very quickly, you saw them going back. Uh, you saw Prigozhin leaving Rostov with a lot of cheering and, and <clears throat> happiness. What do we know about this deal negotiated by Lukashenko, of all people? So it's worth, I guess, saying at this point, when we talk about the deals, the backroom dealings, behind the scenes stuff, and and what we can expect in the next few days, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of speculation. Um, so, but apparently, you know, the official line is that uh, Lukashenko talked to Prigozhin, uh, perhaps on the request of Putin, and and basically the deal that was agreed to was that Prigozhin would go into exile into Belarus um, with his Wagner forces, or no. Well, that's the question about the future of Wagner. Uh, Peskov has said that Wagner fighters basically have a choice out of three things, actually. They can either go... How democratic of them. Yeah. um, They've always gotten special treatment. They can either go uh, to Belarus with Prigozhin, you know, stick stick to their guy, or they can sign contracts with the military, or they can just go home. Um, Just quit. Yeah because they hadn't signed contracts before, so so they were doing their own thing. So that seems to be what's going on. Uh, there was a bit of to and fro about these criminal charges, because immediately, you know, the FSB brought criminal charges against him, uh, against Prigozhin for you know, trying to overthrow the state almost. Um, and they were said to be dropped, but then um, the Russian media reported that they weren't dropped, and then they confirmed that they were definitely dropped. And is he in Belarus now? Do we know... Um, anything about his location? Lukashenko has reported that he's arrived in Belarus. He's been spotted at a at a hotel in Minsk, but we again we we don't know much else about that. Um, we don't know much about uh, Wagner movements to to Belarus yet, or or any other things. And when it comes to his future, we also don't really know any details about about his kind of Wagner empire and his his Concord business empire. Um, 
if if that is all intact in the end, um, that would be kind of miraculous for him, considering you know what the, he tried to what do. he tried to do. Yeah, um, I, I think I think Wagner's activities in in African countries in Syria they'll be preserved. I don't know who will be uh, leading it, um, and and we'll have to wait and see when it comes to his businesses. It honestly seems like everyone has their own explanation of what actually happened and why it actually happened because some people um a good number of them actually don't even believe that this was a genuine attempt at a coup or a rebellion to begin with um they think that this whole situation is kind of kremlin coordinated theatrics for whatever reason um so since there is no real way of knowing um what really happened let's talk at least about some of these theories and what the experts who've studied russia for a very long time are saying yeah, so obviously events as crazy as the ones that happened over the weekend have given birth to kind of a, a plethora of uh, theories of speculations back and forth about deal being done here or there, or you know this being the real plan, this is all theater and so on. Um, some of them include, you know, people were saying that, that Putin and Prigozhin were working together against Shaigu, and this was going to be a way to remove Shaigu without it coming directly from Putin. Uh, some people, again, said that Putin and Prigozhin were working together, but it was not specifically to remove Shaigu, but it was a test for the rest of the elite. Right, in, that's you know, the, the one na- effort. The National Guard, the security structures, to see you know, who would come out... Supporting Prigozhin. <laughs> supporting Prigozhin, who would come out supporting Putin. Again, I think the, the fate of Surovikin will be interesting to keep an eye on. But before getting too deep into these theories, you know, it's, uh, some might have really good argumentation behind them, but like it's worth thinking about really if it makes any sense in terms of what we actually saw in Russia. Like, you know, for for this to be a coordinated action between Putin and Prigozhin, for example, you need to see that this was kind of beneficial for them. You need to see that it makes sense for them to be motivated to do this. And and as for Putin, I mean, it's it's deeply embarrassing. It's deeply embarrassing for him, for his rule, for, for Russia uh, as a whole. And, you know, I think before giving any kind of credence to to the idea that that he was behind this and kind of an organizer of this you need to really think about about these consequences because this is you know this is the opposite of what putin wants to show that russia is you know to to his own people to the world he's always been the force of stability the force of of unity i guess um so yeah you know experts that i've read and respected and discussed with they've They've all been pretty clear that that it seems to be a genuine attempt, although maybe not on Putin himself, of course. Uh, and that's that's what Ukraine is also saying. So now that it's all over, let's talk about some of the consequences um, that might spill over from this. Most importantly, what does all of this mean for Ukraine, for the war and also just politics in the country? That's the most important thing right now. And unfortunately, you know, it seems like Probably not very much. We have no evidence of uh, regular Russian military units who are assigned to the front line in occupied Ukraine at all being rediverted, being redirected to deal with this Wagner threat, which was over again within 24 hours. If it had gone on for long, if they'd occupied Rostov, then that would have been a different different scenario entirely. Um, so in in that you know in that sense, the job in, for Ukraine is is still the exact 
same thing. They have to overcome these defenses. They have to move forward. Um, and Wagner had already left the front line. Wagner, you know, was was in these in these camps. Um, they'd left Bakhmut. So I guess the real uh, thing to discuss is is the removal of Wagner as a player, military-wise. Yeah, entirely from this war. I mean, we don't know exactly what their future is. They might keep the brand and and be be under the defense ministry, but it won't be the same thing. We know that a lot of them will will leave now. Uh, They've already said that a lot of their uh, military equipment, the heavy weapons, uh, will be handed over to the National Guard, making the National Guard even stronger at not defending from coups. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it won't be the same thing as before. Clearly, we know that the military is doing their own private military company thing. Um, so in the end, that's good news for Ukraine. Prigozhin, having pushed things so far, won't now be able to uh, get more favor, get more resources, maybe start you know, recruiting again and, and basically rebuild Wagner into a thing that can basically repeat the Battle of Bakhmut somewhere else. Uh, you know, we know how costly that was for Ukraine as well. We know the kind of war crimes that were committed in those areas. Uh, so that's ultimately good. You could make the counter argument that now the Russian military and security system is more united. That could improve their the way they go about things on the battlefield, because we saw that that's, that disunity was was kind of what resulted in Ukraine actually going on the offensive around Bakhmut. But um, I think their disunity is much, much deeper than Wagner versus MOD. Well, yeah. And, and it's also like potentially they're more unified, but they're unified and they're inefficient. Since you said that Prigozhin and Wagner as a whole might end up or already ended up in Belarus, how does that change the game for Lukashenko, if at all, because I think it was a bit unexpected that he suddenly popped up and got involved, uh, although Turkey did suggest its supporters always in mediating the situation. Yeah, uh, I think the Lukashenko factor is is really interesting here. It's worth noting that Prigozhin himself hasn't really talked about Lukashenko much having a big role in this. He didn't he didn't announce it when he first announced he was turning back. It was like, oh, I decided not to spill blood. Uh, but it's a, it's a really interesting one. I mean, it's it, he's definitely kind of improved his standing with with Putin. People always talk about how much autonomy he has compared to Putin. Russia seems to do whatever they want with their military in Belarusian territory. Um, but you know, he he seems to have more leverage now. Again, what we don't know is what kind of role Wagner will have in Belarus and and what kind of position Prigozhin will have. So again, it opens to a lot of opens the discussion to a lot of theories. People have been talking about how um, Prigozhin could be Putin's tool in Belarus, you know, ready to potentially take control there if Lukashenko doesn't do what Putin wants him to do. What about Russia itself? Um, because this surely has to have um, great consequences for Russia domestically and also internationally, regardless of who is really behind it. Yeah, I mean. It's worth listening to Putin about this himself, you know, in, in this what uh, is he saying? in this kind of tired, angry address on the day of, of this great march on Moscow. You know, he, he went for it. He, he, compl- he compared uh, this to 1917, to the Russian Revolution, which, you know, for him is this horrible year when, when the great Russian Empire fell apart, they killed the Tsar and uh, civil war broke out in Russia. So Putin was referencing this year and using the word civil war. 
people have uh, made comparisons to the Kornilov coup attempt in 1917, which is between Russia's two two revolutions. Which again, uh, it was a kind of it was unsuccessful, but it was it was a sign at the time of of how of how weak the the Russian government was at the time, and it was just it was like a prelude, right, to a, mm-hmm. another revolution and that incited a, a long and, and devastating civil war. And but yeah, with this language, you know, for him to talk about being stabbed in the back by by traitors of, of the motherland, and then to just let this guy go and and live a happy life, and maybe take some of his soldiers with him. I mean, we'll see what 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 will happen with that. But again, it's a it's a great sign of weakness for for the guy who always you know puts on an image of being tough against against the enemies of the motherland. It definitely doesn't match. kind of the reputation and image Russia has amongst certain circles in the West, uh, you know, of it being the great Russian Federation that is so strong and almighty that the West shouldn't really try to mess with. But yeah. here is how a coup attempt played out. So is Russia really that strong? And and we'll see we'll see in the international arena kind of how how this affects things. Um one interesting moment during during that crazy day was that Uh, Putin called um, President Tokayev of Kazakhstan, which is obviously, I mean, they play a bit of a balancing act. They cultivate relationships with uh, China and, and, and the West, but they've always been a strong ally of Russia in the Eurasian Economic Union, in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, through which Moscow actually helped uh, Kazakhstan crush uh, some really violent unrest just uh, a year and a half ago. And he called this guy for help. And Tokayev just said, uh, that's an internal matter of Russia. Though when you have the kind of this, one of your strongest allies uh, is is n- refusing to give you any help. And the other one is negotiating the peace deal with, with the guy who's marching on Moscow. Y- you understand, I mean, it gives a pretty good picture. Although I will say when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine started, we had sanctions, we had crazy tension everywhere. A lot of people started immediately theorizing, right, about some kind of internal palace coup attempt against Putin. Is someone going to knock him off? And and then for a while, you know, that seemed to die down. It seemed like, okay, everyone in Russia is playing their part, even though, even if they don't like it. But at the same time, slowly, Putin was kind of breeding this almost perfect uh, coup leader in in many ways in Prigozhin. You know, he's he thinks for himself. He's charismatic. He's got a big public image, which you know has its attraction to some people, in a, as opposed to the image of of the leader. And and he has a private army, which is well trained and well equipped and experienced. You know, if anyone could 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 pull off something like that, it's Prigozhin. And and you could see how how kind of short he felt, like how how impossible that task was to to take on the whole establishment. So that's the one thing. If we're going to talk real, like like Russia is. The leadership is weaker than ever, but at the same time, you know, we can, I think, leave these conversations about palace coups for a while going forward. We're now going to be answering some questions that we got from our community members. The Coup Independent has finally, finally launched its very own membership system. So it's now really easy to support us and donate to us without any intermediaries. You just have to go to our website at coupindependent.com slash membership. You'll find all the options for donations there. You can also do a one-time donation. And you also get really cool perks like access to exclusive events. Um, sometimes it's discussions with journalists, sometimes with editors. You also get the chance to send us in questions before every single episode. 
and you also get access to a really cool Discord server. Um, we have a Discord server with all of the journalists there and the editors and community members. And we try to um, engage as much as possible and answer your questions there as well. So a lot of questions that we got uh, were about the hypothetical threat of now that Wagner is in Belarus, maybe they could either independently or after joining forces with the Belarusian army, launch another invasion from the north and target Kyiv, for instance. Um, some media outlets even reported on this. So how real is that, do you think? To answer quickly, not very real. It's worth remembering that you know, Prigozhin and Wagner moving to Belarus doesn't really change the equation of a potential second invasion from the north in any way. Uh, the Russian military always had free access basically to the territory of Belarus. They had this disastrous invasion uh, at the start when Ukraine was a lot less well-armed and less prepared and it failed completely and they left. And, you know, there hasn't been any kind of Anything that's changed since then that, that could make this more possible, you'd have to cross a state border with very well-prepared defensive lines. They could have always moved Wagner to Belarus and tried that anyway. So it definitely wasn't the plan. Um, and again, it's just a fraction of what Wagner is now. And what Wagner is now is just a fraction of what Wagner was six months ago uh, before their losses in the Battle of Bakhmut. And it's going to be Wagner without, without heavy weapons. So, so nothing to worry about. Um, if Prigozhin somehow took control of the entirety of Russian forces, what effect might that have on the war? Because Prigozhin did say that there was no reason for Russia to invade Ukraine. That goes back to what you've mentioned earlier. Before this coup attempt, Prigozhin basically debunked all of Kremlin's official narrative propaganda and said that Ukraine never posed a threat to Russia. Um, but at the same time, Prigozhin is so often described as bloodthirsty, and these are such polar opposites. This is a very interesting question because I think some people might risk seeing Prigozhin as some sort of anti-Putin hero, but maybe it's worth mentioning that that's not yeah, true. It's definitely worth mentioning because, I mean, even within Ukrainian social media, I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but like people kind of turned on each other a bit on that day in the sense that uh, a lot of people started posting all these memes, like egging Prigozhin on, like, oh, he's our guy, you know, he's oh, fighting, like, like he's, he's a secret agent of Budanov or something Those like that. Those were good memes. Yeah, they were good memes. But then, you know, other people were like, hang on, like, you know how many of our people, like our soldiers and civilians, have been killed by this guy? You know how many... Tortured, yeah, raped? Like the kind of scale of death and destruction and suffering that, that this guy... Yeah, but to go back to the question, which is obviously very hypothetical and, you know... But it's interesting, like, what is his ideology? Uh, what is his real uh, stance on the war? Because uh, on one hand, he, unlike Putin, he lives in a world of reality... Uh, and not a world of mysticism and Russian world and I'm the emperor, you know, bringing back our territories. But then again, he's a warlord as well, you know. So it's, you ask what, what is... He makes money off yeah, killing people. Yeah, he makes money off killing people. He makes money off death. And I think most of us would agree that his fundamental ideology is self-interest. But if he was in charge of it all, um, what he would do... Uh, it's hard to imagine a warlord like Prigozhin without war. Um, so without him, I think we're in a good place. One of the most popular kind of memes and just things that were going around Ukrainian social media is that 
kind of the most ridiculous and the saddest thing about all of it is that a civil war almost began in Russia over the topic of how to kill Ukrainians most effectively. I thought that that was just like a perfect summary of what happened and and why Prigozhin is not an anti-Putin hero and why um, they deserve each other. On that note, Francis, thank you very much for being here as always. It was very interesting to listen to you. Always a pleasure. Also this week, on June 27th, Russian missiles hit a crowded restaurant in the city of Kramatorsk in Donetsk Oblast, killing at least 11 people and injuring more than 30. As Ukraine's counteroffensive gains traction, Ukraine's armed forces reported liberating the village of Rivnopil in Donetsk Oblast, as well as advancing several kilometers in multiple directions of the front line. And the former head of Kherson Oblast Council, Vladislav Manher, was found guilty of the murder of activist Katerina Handyuk, who was attacked with acid and died from chemical burns back in 2018. While Manhir was found guilty of ordering the murder, his assistant was convicted of organizing it. Both were sentenced to 10 years in prison, as well as ordered to pay more than 400,000 US dollars in compensation to Katarina's family. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also check out Ukraine's True History, the Kyiv Independent's latest multimedia project that sheds light on Russia's distortions of Ukrainian history and debunks Russian propaganda. Support us by donating to us and becoming a member of our community by going to kyivindependent.com/membership and support us also on social media uh, by subscribing to our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>